morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you listen to the podcast. The podcast is available on several platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and Amazon. I'm Sherry Dowder, an occupational therapist and dysgraphia expert. Welcome to The Writing Glitch, Hacking Dysgraphia, No Pencil Required. Today's podcast was brought to you by Dowderer Educational Consulting. At Dutter Educational Consulting, we hack dysgraphia from the inside out. Our mission is to help teachers, therapists, and parents raise the next generation of leaders by hacking barriers to writing success, dysgraphia. We offer two five-day challenges to help you build the skills you need to manage dysgraphia and how writing struggles interfere with math. That is called dyscalculia. We show you how to apply that knowledge to the classroom and help the next generation of leaders maximize their future all without raising the scepter, a pencil. You can find out more at my website, sherrydotterer.com. Click on either the writing or the math challenge button in the menu bar to find out more about writing and math. All right, I'm going to transition a little bit. Talk Mm -hmm. about the New York City School Refusal Survey on your website. What is that? Whenever anybody looks at the paper or the internet, their news programs, chronic absenteeism is a huge problem in pretty much every school district across the country. That said, though, the data doesn't really dive into who's exactly not coming to school and why. And I think there is an assumption that some of the people who are not coming to school are not coming because of poverty at the home, or they're not coming to school because their parents are not enforcing their children to come to school. However, what we've noticed in the students with disability community is that children are not coming to school because they can't handle school. We aptly call it school refusal because the students are literally not coming to school because they can't handle it. We call them symptoms of school refusal. And it could start out with frequent visits to the nurse's office, arguments in the morning at home. I don't want to go to school. The student is calling home via text or through the principal's office or whatever, say, I don't feel well. I need to go home. And somewhere between that and those are ignored, in a sense, by the school. And then between that and full-blown absenteeism, that's what we're facing. And that's what we call school refusal. Well, the reason why my group, Special Support Services, put together this school refusal survey was because our own children, because we're still parents of students with disabilities, our own children didn't want to go to school. And I consider myself to be an active and involved parent. And I did everything I could to try to get my kid to go to school, but he just couldn't go. And we thought, okay, let's engage our school system. We put together a survey and we asked parents, does your child have a disability? Yes. Okay. Fill out the survey. 140 parents filled out the survey and we found that school refusal is equally divided up into the three areas, high school, middle school, elementary. You don't have more students with disabilities skipping school because they're in high school. No, actually kids in elementary school are just as, is refusing school just as much as a middle school or a high schooler. And that the scary part was that there are people who had never seen school refusal 
prior to the pandemic. So the pandemic does have something to do with it. Over half of them didn't want, had not seen symptoms of school refusal prior to the pandemic. And what was most alarming was that 34% of the respondents said that their children were expressing intention of self-harm, which is something that we're going to hear. Sadly, from that, we saw that 14% of those students had somebody come to their home, only 14. And then 11% of the students. Stop a second on the 14% that came to the home. Do you mean a school professional came to the home? In New York City, we call them attendance teachers. Like, I don't even know what that means, but that's what they're called. There's specific personnel within a school system that is designed to address the problem of absenteeism. Like a truancy officer. I don't know if it's an officer, because I've when I was a kid, I remember there were like undercover cops roaming around. And if they saw a kid in the middle of the street in the middle of the day, they might say, what are you doing out here? But these people are teachers. They work for the district and they would call and come to your house to say, why haven't you come to school? Which is helpful, absolutely. But I don't think that those people are necessarily psychologists or special education teachers or therapists. It's a concern. But the biggest concern was that one out of 10 of them actually said that nothing was done. If your child is showing up to the nurse's office five times a week trying to go home, nobody is doing anything. If you complain to your school that you're having an hour argument with your child every day and you're barely getting that child to get out and come to school even late nobody does anything because the child eventually showed up what my child missed 42 days of school nobody came to my house because in in new york city you have to miss 10 days a row you have to miss 10 school days in a row to warrant a visit to your home because my actually in Pennsylvania, yeah, it's, 10, it's 10 days and we got to the 11th day and I was getting phone calls from the school and my kid had a medical condition that was preventing him from going and we had to have a doctor's excuse for every single one of those things. And we did and they had them. They still called. Calling is might be annoying in that situation, but like absolute ignoring when the family is pleading for help. This is not a family that is, these are not families that are not talking to their schools. For in my case, I would literally beg my school to help and nothing or not enough was being done. And it's a pro- the survey was created to, to discover and document that problem because what we found was that a lot of students who refuse school, they don't necessarily refuse and then never go back. There's actually things that they show, signs in advance, the fighting before school, going through frequent nurses' office visits, but nothing is done during that time. Some of these kids, they might go to school for five days and then not go to school for nine days, go back to school for a week, and not that's how they would do things. That doesn't trigger an alarm for somebody to come to your house. And in my son's case, it was 42 days and no one came to my house. But it is for other people. It's really unacceptable. And it was an online survey. The link was passed around. And we actually had 200 people answer the survey. And just 140 of them were from New York City. But the other 60 were from all parts of the country, including New Zealand, just like other places outside. Because this is a problem that happens in public schools where people ignore when students with disabilities don't come to school. What we need for them is proper assessment 
and proper intervention. And neither of those things are happening for many of these students who are not coming to school because it's about the disability. They might not be coming because they have a mental illness or they might have developed an aversion to school because they're not getting what they need. If they needed occupational therapy for writing and no one's giving it to them because their their writing is legible sometimes, then they're not going to want to come to school because this is embarrassing for them. And they rather deal with their parents yelling at them instead of going to school because no one is recognizing what they need. And it happens so much to the extent where it might have started out with I don't want anybody to know about my dysgraphia and no one's helping me there anyway to now I have a full-blown anxiety disorder and I'm not coming to school, even if you give me OT. These are things that we have to fix. Were you able to track the days that kids were refusing based on test testing that day in school? What I'm asking is, were you able to go back to their schedule and find out if they had a math test? And that was the day they were refusing to go to school. I know for me, that was an issue. And that seems to be an issue with a lot of the students that I have. They would refuse on particular days because they knew what was coming up that day in school. Sometimes we would know. It depends on how involved the parents are and how accessible the information is. Sometimes the students knew, but they knew like the day before and that's not enough notice. What I was saying earlier of the survey is, and the report that we wrote afterwards was that the students actually need proper assessment. You could actually have a functional behavior assessment just to to figure out why the student is showing school aversion. That's the reason we have to find the function of the behavior. And what happens when the student stops coming to school is that it's harder for the school to assess the child because a lot of students, a lot of schools do not assess children at home, but there is a way, there should be a way you can also ask for an independent educational evaluation at the public expense and ask for a functional behavior assessment to be done because your school will not come to your house. Otherwise, why don't they come to your house then? We need the, we need those assessments to be done, whether it's because of performance, because of a test because of social anxiety, because of depression. There's so many different reasons, but like the parents can't figure all of that out on their own. And they're just not getting the cooperation and the collaboration that they need. This is amazing. The things that you're doing. I'm just saying. Wonderful. Too much. We just made a report and that's it. We try to get people to pay attention to this and hopefully Somebody will change the way things are done because I think that what schools are doing to combat chronic absenteeism is not including the needs of students with disabilities. And perhaps if they did, they would be more successful in reducing those numbers. Is your survey still active that people that listen to this episode, it's not active anymore? It's fun. Uh, it's one of the great things about doing a survey is you just do it quick. We just did two weeks. In two weeks alone, we got 140 people just like that. And the survey is not to count, but just to get a snapshot. This is what it looks like so that policymakers or administration officials will be able to figure out what to do. And hopefully somebody will 
see the light someday. My suggestion is that you make that survey available again at some point and see what the next snapshot looks like. See if things shift. That's a great idea. Thanks. It also could be a way of triggering connections with others too, if you had it available over time. So we'll throw it out there because what that survey shares, when you look at research, 220 people isn't enough. If you had it available for a longer period of time, you could gather a lot more information by things like sharing it on this podcast and other podcasts and getting it out there over time. You could really maybe get into the five-figure relationships and figure out some more refined trends that are happening You make me think that we also need teachers out there that are understanding what happens beyond the school day, what happens during sleep, because one of the things that affects, which is the right way, is it the A or the E? I never know. I say this one. That affects writing is sleep. And if the kids aren't sleeping the night before, they're not going to engage in writing the day of of class. We need professionals out there, teachers that are able to see what's going on outside the classroom as part of the school day. I know it isn't directly related, but there needs to be, that needs to be something that happens. I don't know how to make that happen either. Hopefully we can teach parents and teachers to collaborate and create evidence and supportive documentation together. Let's say the student is not sleeping because the student is afraid of going to school. And if we collaborate evidence together, we might be able to figure that out. And then we could then make changes during the school day or at home or both. That collaboration and that communication has to take place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Amazing. Oh, thank you. Last week, you came to a five-day challenge, the writing challenge that I did. I want to ask you, what was your favorite intervention? Oh my gosh. The things that you were teaching me, there was so much, but I really liked when you were describing different dysgraphia. I think that it's so important that everyone learns exactly what dysgraphia is. I don't think, I think people think they know what dysgraphia is but I don't think they fully understand. And I really want neuropsychological evaluators and occupational therapists to be teaching parents and teachers what is the difference between developmental coordination disorder, dysgraphia, learning disability with impairment and written expression. All of those things affect a student's ability to write and express themselves in writing. And then if we know what those are, we can develop appropriate interventions for them. Some kids don't have a problem with punctuation, capitalization, spelling. They just can't form those letters with their hands. But some kids have just the, some kids can form the letters with their hands, but then they can't spell. They don't know when to use a comma. They will write a hundred word sentence and because they don't know when to put a period in. And those are, that's a written expression problem. 
And we need to know what those are. And you were talking about all different types of dysgraphia. And I was fascinated by that. I think it is so cool to learn more and more about those things so that we could figure out what we need to do. We talk about dyslexia a lot, even though dyslexia is still under treated problem within the near, within most public school districts. Dysgraphia is really like just another, like a second, it's like a demoted stepsister really, because everybody thinks OT is going to cover it, but actually it just goes so much more beyond that. And people don't know that if you have dysgraphia, it's very likely you're going to need explicit multimodal sequential writing instruction that is actually based on evidence and research. And if you ask any teacher, can you name a program that has that? It's, there's not that many anyway. And we need to know what to do for those students. And it's really difficult because we really need, kids are really not able to write. There are so many things that are in their way. There are kids that may not have dysgraphia, but they have a diagnosis of ADHD. And that's just, that's enough to really ruin that the writing process in itself. That's another problem. How can we help these students? And we have to be able to learn what interventions are out there and then present them to the IEP team so that it can be adopted and included and then researched, attract for the students so that the student makes appropriate progress. If you look at the common core standards for any state, it is if you look at it, though, you're going to see that it's actually really high. Like you, they expect you to do a lot of things. You have to use pieces of evidence. You have to be able to connect your conclusion to whatever you said in your topic statement. This is really hard. If parents are looking to say, my child can't write, look at your child's writing and look at the common core standards and see, does it actually, does your child meet the standards? And if the answer is no, then that's another reason that you're able to advocate for your child. There's so many common core standards. I can't imagine how a teacher is able to work on all of those things. It's a lot. But and yet those are that's federal law that students are supposed to be able to reach challenging objectives. And the guidance for that is your own state level standards. And those are common core standards for your state. Sometimes when we're trying to help our students who have a written expression disorder, we look at the writing common core standards for that student and for that city or that state. And we see that, wow, this student's not making it. And then we have to try to prove that the student's not making it. It's not easy. No, it's not. And everybody who is listening to this, while Jen was talking, I'm like over here, like pretending I'm gagging because she's talking about the common core and stuff. It's not that I'm opposed to common core. I'm opposed to the way common core has been interpreted and writing skills are embedded within the common core explicitly to be teaching handwriting, cursive writing, all types of writing skills. But because it doesn't say teach a child to print the alphabet, it got lost. Part of the reason I was pretending I was gagging is because 
it, of the frustration I have with the interpretation. <laughs> Absolutely. I think the interpretation is where you're, it's, you're going to have a problem even at the IEP meeting level, but we do have to try. And, and I'm so glad that you brought it up because there are things that are still missing. I don't, when I was young, I learned how to type. We actually received explicit typing instruction. And I don't know what these kids are doing with the one finger hen and peck situation. And whoa, it's really, it's a, when did we stop teaching them when we, when these kids really have to use them? And yeah, and there's so a like, famous program out there. There's a famous program out there that a lot of the schools are embracing and they are not teaching keyboarding. They are teaching how to use one finger in one hand and one finger in the other hand. Yeah, that's just how cool it would it be if, if students really did get that explicit instruction in a particular time. And if they didn't get it during that time, meaning like they would learned it and if they didn't master it, then perhaps they can get OT so that they can do that so then they could actually function at the pace of their peers instead of hating writing. <laughs> and maybe their hands just a little too small the year that they were teaching it. We'll bring it back. One of the things that that John Lee is talking about is using the same exact task in kindergarten that you would use in 12th grade. You're just going to grade it a little bit differently depending on their grade and the standards that they that the school has to meet. But you also want to give them reference back to something that they've already experienced. And I relate this about the size of the hand to the clarinet. When my daughter received the clarinet in third grade, her hand was too small to reach the bottom key that you have to do to make a B flat or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was. Because of that, she hated to go to clarinet lessons because she couldn't make the sound on the clarinet the way it was because her hand was too small. If she would have, if we would have brought it back two years later, when her hand grew a little bit, it would have been a different story. Hand size and strength has something to do with writing, but it doesn't mean that you stop practicing. That means that you find other ways to practice. I am at the point in the podcast where I want to share an intervention. Jen, you didn't specifically give me an intervention based on our oh. conversation here, and that's okay. But the one that I want to share today is stretching your full body into extension. And I may have even shared this one before, but I think it's very important with these kids that have special needs, specifically the twice exceptionals, these ones that are falling through the cracks that are gifted, they don't necessarily have a coordination disorder. They are very smart. They have just a little bit of a problem with writing many of the times. Getting those kids to tighten up their core muscles with any kind of activity, especially one that'll put their upper body into a full extension position. So what I mean is standing tall. Try to stand tall, tuck your buttocks in, tuck your abdomen in, and put your arms up over your head so you're trying to reach the sky. And then put your fingers back behind your head so that your palm is flat toward the sky. And try to hold it for 30 seconds and then go to and see if I could see somebody doing that. Absolutely. And I have twice exceptional clients that actually do need to do things like that. And what we need is that to be documented so that on the IEP, so that people know when a student might be right before they write is a direction. 
also, if the student is showing dysregulation, that might be another time to do it. The OT is telling you to do. And one of the things I love about occupational therapy evaluations is that you'll actually see a lot of those things written down in there. And I love to just copy paste it like almost exactly as that was written into the IEP because that's what really what we want to see. We don't necessarily need to have occupational therapy for the student every single day. But if we, the therapist is asking us to do this X exercise at these times, these specific times right before writing or when they're showing dysregulation or right before, right after they come back from lunch, where it is, that's what we need to see. And most and likely if you do it class-wide, it's going to even work better. Right. And that's what I was going to say. And camouflage it by having the entire class do it so that they're not singling out that one student and making them feel bad about themselves because with all kids, all they want, all they desire is to belong. Absolutely. Have you ever seen Me Moves? No. What do you mean? Oh, Me Moves is really cool. I loved Me Moves. It's like a video that you can play where the students are following a picture. It could be like a highlighted O. And then the students are doing one of these and the student might be doing this at the same time. And there's a little, and all of the kids do it right after they come back from lunch or when the, right when they start their day. And it's, but it was created by somebody whose child had autism and I still have it somewhere. It's just the coolest thing ever. I love when people are doing things like that because that is really, that's the meaning of inclusion, isn't it? When yes. I'm providing a service to you so that everybody is getting what they need and so they could be together. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been Sherry Dutter, dysgraphia expert of The Writing Glitch. I have been interviewing Jennifer Che. Did I say it right that time? Yes. Parent advocate mm -hmm. and partner at Special Support Services in New York City. Jen, the writing, tell the Writing Glitch community where they can find out about you. What's your website, your social media? We have my own Twitter handle is Toys as Tools. And that's because I really think that many toys are tools that a lot of therapists use, including occupational therapists. I love them. I used to be a toy reviewer for a long time. And uh our website is called specialsupportservices.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter as well. And on our website, you'll see things that we've been doing in the New York City disability community. But yeah, it's a passion that all of us have. We're all moms of students with special needs. Thank you. I understand. You. I understand that you wrote an article that was in, in the care.com. Tell me about that. Oh, it was just the, something that, you know, that anybody could use at any time, really. It's about like how to prepare for that IEP meeting, especially if it's your very first one. I think you'll see very common items in there that you might see in other articles. However, one thing that I think is really important that kind of goes back to what we we're talking about in terms of collaborating with your teachers at school is I think that parents should be able to create their own supportive documentation. A lot of times when parents are asked to come to IEP meetings, they are given the documentation to be considered at the IEP table. 
they'll be giving you teacher reports, they'll be giving you occupational therapy reports, things like that. If it's a new evaluation, then maybe the parent will be submitting that. But there are things that parents can also do. For example, let's say your child is not writing very well. Bring all the pages that you want from your child's writing books from school. Even if it's stuff from home, it's still writing. And so they can they can just photocopy that and put that in together as a small PDF. If you want to go one step further, you can actually examine the Common Core standards of your student's grade and compare the Common Core standards to your own child's writing, what they had to do for school and say, clearly, I'm thinking that this is not matching up here and just put that down. That is a piece of evidence that the team has to consider. When I say consider, I don't mean that the team looks at it and says, thank you very much. Considering means that I hand in, I as the parent, hand in a, doc, a piece of document for the team to consider, and the team considers it by reading it, looking at it, and making comments about it. If I go up to the school and I say, hey, what do you think about this writing that my child is doing? It doesn't look like it's grade level. They have to say, it's grade level because X, Y, Z. That's consideration. They can't say, thanks very much for giving it to me. That's not consideration. Or if they just say it's grade level, that's not consideration. Consideration means I'm looking at it and commenting because I care about what you think because you're a member of the IEP team and your thoughts matter, right? It goes with just regular conversation. I'm going to consider you and I'm going to make a comment to what you say instead of just dismissing you. So that's the kind of thing that we want parents to do, create their own supportive material. I love that. I love that. That is amazing. It reminds me of a story of when I was being educated as an advocate. The lady that was in my instructor said this was an experience that happened to her. She had just had a neuropsych evaluation done for her child. And she came to an IEP meeting and they considered it. From picking it up and throwing it in the circular file. Oh, goodness. She was so offended. And she tells that story every time she teaches that class. That is not the consideration Jen is talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no. And really what I'm trying to be more wary of is the consideration that is a pretend consideration. It's not real consideration. When they say here in New York, if someone says to you, we don't think that your child should have X service, they have to say why. They have to write it down. They have to say, we don't think that they should have X service because it's too restrictive. It's not least restrictive environment. That's not consideration. That's like saying it's blue because it's blue. We need to hear why something is like that. It's cold because if I touch it, it's going, to, my fingers are going to freeze. There has to be a reason for something. And grade level isn't even a reason for denying special education services. They, there, there needs to be more thought to that whole process. And at least you have to attempt to engage the system and give your opinion and give your reasons for your opinions. And if they want to consider it, then they have to give you real thoughtful considerations right back. And a lot of times they don't. And then that's when you have other things that you have to do. Amazing, Jen. Thank you Thank for sharing. You. Our podcast is released on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month during the school year. Join 
the Writing Glitch community today, and that is at thewritingglitch.com. Remember, you were put here for such a time as this. Post-podcast production is managed by Sam C. Productions.